Hello, everybody. Um, I'm here to welcome you to this talk on comparing welfare across species. Um, so today's speaker is Bob Fisher. Bob is a senior research manager for Rethink Priorities, uh, as well as an associate professor of philosophy at Texas State University and the director of the Society for the Study of Ethics and Animals. He led the Rethink Priorities Moral Weights Project and is now doing research on worldview diversification. As a reminder, if you have questions for Bob, you can leave them on the Swap Card app. The way you do that is you open up this session and there should be a panel for live discussion and questions. And after this talk, I will ask a mixture of prepared and audience questions. So welcome, Bob. OK, folks, let's answer some unanswerable questions in uh, 40 minutes. Uh, what could possibly go wrong? So um, this project that I'm going to be talking to you about was something we pursued over about 18 months, uh, recently finished publishing all of the work from it. We're going to be uh, giving you a quick overview of the main result, methodology and results that we, um, that we developed. Um, you know, the real, I think we talk about comparing welfare across species. Ultimately, the main goal here, of course, because of our interest as uh, members of the EA community, is how to make trade-offs, right? We're trying to figure out how to do cost-effectiveness analyses so that we can figure out how on earth to make trade-offs that result in our doing as much good as we possibly can with scarce resources. So let's get into it. These are the problems that we are facing, and at the roughest cut, Right? At the roughest cut, what we are doing is you know, trying to compare individuals. Right? That's sort of the way you initially formulate the problem. How many chickens is a child worth? Which I assure you is not a way to make friends at parties. That's not the kind of thing that you should lead with when you are talking to ordinary people. But around here, it seems to be OK. In any case, this is, this is the initial way that you might formulate the problem. But it's not the way that's actually most useful for thinking about the way we are pursuing this project. So ultimately, what we want to do is be able to say, look, we've got numbers of individuals, and we have welfare impacts that we've quantified. And now we want to compare those welfare impacts. I set this up arbitrarily, where the welfare impacts are the same. That is not essential, right? So of course, what we really want to do is say, look, for any different kind of welfare impact, and for any number of individuals, how do we compare them, right, if we're just going to aggregate welfare? And so there's a simple methodology that you could use where you just say, OK, look, assign, right? assume there's a 0 to 1 scale for welfare. right? Assume that animals are starting at 1. right? That's, the, that's sort of your baseline welfare state, not the neutral point, but rather just like that's good welfare. And then we're looking at reductions in welfare. And then we say, oh, well, 50% uh, welfare impact on these humans. Now we can just do the math. We end up with a certain number of welfare units. Goodness gracious, it turns out the chickens rapidly dominate, right? And this is the kind of setup that leads us to the kind of questions that we're asking here. And as soon as we recognize this, as soon as we see this situation, we realize that figuring out what to do is going to require a bunch of very difficult, very hard, fundamental questions in philosophy. We're going to have to think about theories of welfare. We're going to think about, do animals vary in their capacity for welfare? We're going to have to ask ourselves, hey, look, is it really the case that given equal sums of welfare, that we care about them equally, regardless of whose they are? It turns out, when you ask many people this, they say, nope. <laughs> 
They say, I do not care about all units of welfare the same. I care about humans' welfare more than I care about other kinds of animals' welfare, right? And so we have all these different sorts of things to sort out. Very hard problems, very hard problems. What do you do? Well, of course what you try to do is not deal with them, right? That's what you do. And so people want to appeal to neuron counts. Like, well, philosophy's hard. I don't really want to do it. Wikipedia has a list of neuron counts. Maybe we could just get around this entire problem in a simple, straightforward way, all right? And if we do that, then what we can do is we can come up with this species to human ratio, right, using the number of neurons. And now we can discount sums of welfare by that ratio to get some particular result. Now, oh, don't worry, everything's fine again. The humans win, right? <laughs> we all feel so much better. Now, they don't really win, oh, by the way, because there are just so many gosh darn chickens. But like, set that aside. Just like, feel the pleasure for a brief moment that you still matter most. OK, so that's the situation. That's the situation. So if we can just appeal to neuron counts, everything's going to be fine. Is that the case? Well, it gets complicated, because actually the elephants win, yes. right? Now, many of us are going to be thrilled about that. Of course, we love them, et cetera, et cetera. But so, so you know, neuron counts are a complicated proxy to use. But aside from the fact that they're not perfectly going to match our intuitions about the appropriate ordering of taxa, there are other kinds of problems. And really what you want to know is like, what on earth are we using these things as proxies for? Right? What is it that we are trying to get at when we use neuron counts? And does that thing matter? So you might say, oh, well, it's a proxy for intelligence, right? And then you now we have to ask the question, like, is, is intelligence really the thing that affects moral value? Is that how much welfare you can realize? Is that what it determines by? As you might imagine, that will lead to lots of predictably awful results, right? At least the ones that we will find predictably awful when it comes to human beings. So, you know. What is this thing actually a proxy for? Do we actually value it? Is it the case that we think neuron counts are a good proxy for it? In the case of intelligence, again, just to use that as one example, it turns out really not to be, right? The simplest way of seeing that is by noticing that there are not big differences in intelligence between individuals. Uh, there's like actually a lot of intraspecific variation in, in the number of neurons in brains. And that does not seem to be in any way correlated with intelligence. And of course, we can also see much larger differences across other species. But even if, even if this was the case, even if we sort of like thought, well, you know, maybe it is a proxy for something we do care about. It's an imperfect proxy, but maybe it's all right. There's still the question of we can, whether we can do better, right? I think we can, but it is not easy or straightforward. All right, so let's see how it goes. What does it look like if we try to move beyond Neuron counts. Well, if we're going to do this, we got to, you got to like, give me, give me some slack here, right? Let me make some assumptions to get the project going. And we can talk about relaxing these assumptions at the end, but for now, we're going to take them on and see where that gets us, right? So we're going to make two assumptions. One of them is just we're going to assume hedonism, right, which is a philosophical theory of welfare. Welfare is just going to be the positive states minus the negative states, uh, exper you know, valenced experiential states. Nothing else is going to matter. Right, so desire satisfaction doesn't matter. There is no objective list of goods such that you know, if you achieve knowledge or friendship or political impact or whatever, that those things count. Intrinsically for welfare, all that matters is valenced states. Right? And we're also going to assume Unitarianism. This actually does not matter for the purposes of the project, per se. You could then just go and add on some 
um, you know, discount if you're like, well, chicken welfare, that only counts X amount uh, compared to you know, human welfare. But for the purposes of simplifying everything, we're just gonna assume if we've got equal sums of welfare, they count equally, right? Of course, we're gonna assume that because it's true, but you know, uh, we're, there's, that's like another story. We can have that conversation other time. But so that's, we're gonna, we're gonna bake that in. That makes it easy to see how you would go on and do, or easier to see how you'd go on and do this analysis. So we make these assumptions and now we say, all we have to do is figure out what's going on after this, right? We have to figure out, okay, well, maybe if welfare is like water, right? How big is each animal's bucket? What this means is how intense is the pain that they can experience, right? How intense are the pleasures they can experience? Because that's all it counts for welfare. So when we say, when we use this metaphor, right, of different animals being able to realize different amounts of welfare, what we are really saying is different animals can have stronger uh, valence states, more intensely valence states than others, whether positive or negative, all right? And we're actually gonna do is we're gonna zero in one more time Right? And we're going to think about just this, um, this, uh, this range here, this thing on the left, red's welfare range. In other words, we're going to focus on the difference between the peak negative experience and the peak positive experience. Right? We're focusing on welfare at a time. Right? We're focusing on capacity for welfare at a time, which we call a welfare range. How, what's the, it's the highest high you can experience and the lowest low you can experience, and the difference between them is your welfare range. That's what we're estimating. Right? That's what we want to estimate. That tells us how much welfare that individual could realize. And then once we know that, we can do that thing we talked about in the very beginning. And we said, oh, 50% welfare impact. And we can use that as a way of going from a range, a welfare range, to an estimate of an amount of welfare. And we can compare them in a common unit. That is the fundamental strategy. Okay. So what we're ultimately interested in is estimating welfare ranges understood as the difference between the most intense positive experience and the most intense negative experience, all right? But most positive and most negative in what sense, okay? What if we, and the, the only way to answer this is to think back out. What is the project here? Right? The project here, again, is cost-effectiveness analysis in EA. Cost-effectiveness analysis in EA, at least in the global health context, often is, occurs in, in terms of disability-adjusted life years averted. So, right? That's the unit of goodness. How much good did you do? Well, how many disability-adjusted life years did you avert? Right? How much of that loss did you avert? Right? The burden that you averted. So ultimately, what we want to do is we got to somehow go from these units of welfare for non-human animals, and we got to express that in terms of disability-adjusted life years averted. Because if we can't do that, then we can't do the kinds of unified, cost-effective analyses we want to do. We cannot do cross-species cost-effectiveness analyses. It would be great, of course, if that's not the way it worked. It would be great if it was just like, oh, well, we measure human welfare, and now we just compare it to animal welfare, and it's straightforward. But of course, no, open fill out to make it complicated. But it's fine, right? We're doing it. We're doing it. So we thought we, we've got the idea of a disability of life here, right, which we're not going to talk through today. But the point is we can define the bottom and the top of a welfare range in terms of a disability adjusted life year, right? So what we can say is that the best welfare state, right, 
is the average welfare level of the average human in full health. And if we do that, right, we think about how things are going for the average human in full health, and we say, well, look, that's, that's where we're indexing relative to. So we say, well, that's going to be some positive number. We can arbitrarily assume that the worst welfare state is just the negative number. And then we say, or the negation of that same number, rather. And then we now have a way, if we can estimate how much welfare chickens are realizing relative to that amount of welfare, then we can make the conversion. Now, this is all, it's, it's all um, a product of the particular decision context, right? It's not that this was the ideal way of setting things up, right? It's that given the fact that the, the information that's actually available to us to make human-oriented decisions is of a certain kind, then you have to be thinking about animal welfare in a certain way. That being said, in one sense, it's not that wild to think that the, once you see the sort of proxies that we're looking at, it's not that wild to think that what we are actually getting at is something like these sort of average positive and average negative welfare states, but we can talk about that in Q&A if you're interested. In any case, how do things go? Let's just stand back. What on earth just happened? We are interested in this project of making conversions between human welfare and animal welfare. Unfortunately, we don't measure human welfare directly. We use this thing the disability of life year. So we have to figure out how to express animal welfare in terms of the disability adjusted life year. And to do that, what we do is we define this thing, a welfare range, the difference between peak and trough experience, as it were, positive and negative experience. And then we define the peak in terms of the disability adjusted life year. And those it's, of course, an arbitrary unit, but it's chosen solely for the purpose of allowing conversion. That's all we care about. So that's the way we set it up. And then we now need to figure out how are we going to go about estimating these differences. Because, of course, to make my life difficult, we have no way of measuring the intensity of valence states across species. We can barely do it in humans, right? So what do you do in that context? Well, what you do is you say, what are valence states for? Let's think about the function, the evolutionary function of valence states. And there are several theories. And so what you do is you say, let's identify some of these theories. A representational theory, right? Valence states are for representing fitness-relevant information for an organism. There is a motivational theory. Valence states are for motivating organisms to do certain things at certain times. There's a common currency theory. Valence states are there to allow organisms to make trade-offs between different options, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? And each of those theories each of, comes along with this, you know, a particular function. And then you can look at the function and say, all right. What would be evidence for variation in the ability to realize that function? 
If valence states are about representing fitness-relevant information, then what features of an organism would be evidence that they have greater representational capacities or lesser representational capacities? If valence states are about a common currency for decision-making, which kinds of organisms face more complex decision-making contexts They might require a wider range of valence states for decision-making, et cetera, right? And so what we did was we identified those functions. On that basis, we built a big interdisciplinary team, cognitive scientists, comparative psychologists, animal welfare scientists, et cetera. And we, look, we each went out and we found lists of proxies that we thought were good proxies for these states, for these functions, variation of these functions, rather. Then we went around and assessed, right? We did a Delphi panel. Here are my proxies. Here are my reasons. We share them with one another, et cetera. We iterate that process. We whittle down the list of proxies. And then you have to go out in the literature you're like, well, what do we know? What do we actually know about the cognitive capacities or the hedonic capacities or the social lives of fill in the blank for the 11 farm species in which we were interested? And then, on the basis of all that, you aggregate. You move somehow, via magic, from the literature review to actual numbers that represent welfare range estimates. So first, we did the literature review. Right? The main upshot of this literature review, which obviously you cannot see in any detail here, but this is just to give you a sense of what we did. The main upshot is, of course, we know so little. It's just depressing how little we know of the animals we exploit in truly stunning numbers. Um, this is all, of course, on the forum. You can see it there in you know, gory detail, et cetera. Um, with all the references, you can track down the papers that we were looking at. But you know, the main problem, of course, is incredible ignorance about these animals. And so that is a check on our confidence, right? It should certainly be a check on our confidence. But that is the only, you know, all you can do is just start with where the literature is. So we did that. And then we move from there to these welfare range estimates. How do we get, now, let me just quickly pause, all right? The numbers don't mean that much, okay? Don't anchor on the numbers, right? And be sure to interpret them properly, right? What we are estimating, remember, is the difference between the intensity of valenced states, right? So saying pigs are at 0.5, roughly, means not I think a pig matters half as much as you, right? That's not what it's saying. I mean, that might be true. Maybe, I mean, I, you know, it's an open question. But, like, but that's not what it says, right? What that number means is that that pig's pain is half as intense or can be half as intense as yours, right? When you are, uh, you know, by, by, the, by the metric that we've been using here. Now, honestly, on evolutionary grounds, I think that's an underestimate. I think this is just, you know, probably low, lowballing those poor pigs. I don't see any good reason to think 
that your pain is that much more intense than a pig's. Now, when we get down to silkworms and black soldier flies, it's really complicated. I'm not sure what to say. And maybe those numbers I take more seriously. But the point here is that when you recognize that what we're talking about is pain intensity, it's less crazy to end up with numbers that are sort of fairly close to human numbers. It would be surprising if an ancient system that is highly adaptive, that is used to ensure that organisms don't get dead, it would be that different across species, right? What makes you special and interesting is not the intensity of your pain. It's all these other cognitive capacities you have. And if you think that welfare is just about pleasures and pain, then of course you get results where humans and non-human animals are fairly close, right? It would be surprising if you didn't, I say. Now, this is what we actually think, okay? The numbers are what the model spits out. And then you have to ask, well, how confident are you in the, in the models, especially when you think at the macro level about the larger evolutionary considerations here? And so, you know, these, this is the big picture, right? We basically think, yeah, the vertebrates aren't that different from humans within an order of magnitude. How close? I don't know, but not that far off. We basically don't think that the vertebrates that we looked at were that different. So when you, you know, go from carps to pigs, I don't think the variation is huge in terms of the intensity of the valence states available. And lots of uncertainty about the invertebrates. So we say, well, within a couple of orders of magnitude of the vertebrates, right? Could be pretty close, but you know, could be farther off, lots of uncertainty. Now, all of this is discounted, by the way, based on the probability of sentience. So we did a whole separate project that mirrors this one that's designed to assess the probability of sentience. And that project, you know, the numbers that spit out of that project that mirror what we did here, or the methodology mirrors what we did here, um, were used to adjust those welfare range scores. So when you're seeing those numbers that we put up before, those are uh, discounted already based on the probability of sentience. So you're not, you don't want to add some additional discount saying, well, you know, I only think it's 60% likely that chickens are conscious because I'm a crazy higher order theorist or whatever the case may be. No, 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 that's already sort of factored in. That being said, right? It's important to recognize that what we were interested in ultimately was doing human-animal conversions, right? We are interested in the project of going from disability-adjusted life years averted to animal welfare, or rather vice versa, so that there can be unified cost-effectiveness analyses. That was our mandate. But you could look at our project and say, Bob, you seem so nice. I really enjoyed your talk, but there's no way I'm going to believe those human-animal comparisons. However, you might still be sympathetic to the animal-animal comparisons, right? You could think, okay, yeah, sure, you're missing something really important when it comes to humans, but maybe if all we're doing is comparing salmon and crabs, I'm game, right? So notice that the project is to some degree detachable, right, if you're just focused on animals. So if you're just focused on animal-animal trade-offs, you could use the project without 
the human component. Of course, the human component is what makes it particularly exciting in the context of EA, but there are many applications outside of EA and even within EA where just the animal-animal comparison is a big deal. If you want to go and try to argue that animal welfare should show up in the social cost of carbon, as it should, then you need some way to quantify welfare impacts on unhuman animals, right? And even if you're going to apply some systematic discount to animal welfare such that it matters far less, much less than we are suggesting, you could still say, yeah, but the, the relative weights should track these sorts of numbers or something like them. So I say that not to suggest that's what you should do, but to help us recognize that this is not a monolithic take-it-or-leave-it project. This is a project that is modular, right? It has various components built for various purposes, designed to be used in a particular context to inform particular decisions. But you could extract chunks and use them in different ways depending on your particular interests and needs. Okay. Let me stop there and say thank you so much for listening. I look forward to a discussion about what we've done. Thank you so much. Um, uh, as I said earlier, if you have questions, please leave them in a swap card. Uh, exciting to see some questions rolling in. Um, I guess I'll kick us off with, so when I was reading the forum posts on this topic, uh, I think, yeah, I know you told us not to anchor super harshly on the numbers or at least to interpret them properly. I think the first thing I saw at least was the graph, which I found just like extremely wild or something. Yeah. Um, I think that's been some people's impressions um, from talking to others. Um, and yeah, after listening to this talk, I'm kind of curious, you know, when you look at that graph or when you try to present that, um, I guess, like, what do you think the biggest implications for the space are um, in terms of, you know, if we took those welfare ranges really seriously, what does that imply for us as a movement, um, especially within animal welfare, within the whole space? Well, it means corporate campaigns look pretty good. Yeah. Um, so if you're trying to compare causes and you're thinking about, you know, what sort of uh, value should you assign to improving the lives of billions of chickens, then it turns out that's going to be one of the best ways you can possibly spend money. Not necessarily the best, but it's going to be up there. It's going to be in your list of top three. Um, or at least so says the models that we've built for cross-cause uh, assessment. That being said, um, you know, for me, so I've been doing animal stuff for the last 15 years. Um, I was pretty skeptical about uh, insects, in particular, invertebrates generally, uh, for a long time. I actually wrote papers arguing for insect consumption and use as feed. I mean, I was like fully on board with the idea that those are a bunch of little robots, and you don't need to worry about them. Uh, in fact, let's use them to make the lives of other animals better. And I just think I was wrong about that. Um, and the more I learn, the more impressed I am with their abilities, and the more concerned I am about the rise of uh, insect farming. But of course, there's the rise of insect farming, but there's also the truly catastrophic case of shrimp farming. And I realize that this is like now a meme, and none of us take shrimp seriously because, you know, it's like 
a joke in EA, and yet the numbers are insane, and their lives are really bad in various ways, and they can be improved. And so I certainly care about that in a way I did not prior to this project. Thanks. Yeah, that um, makes, makes a lot of sense. I don't know. I hope that shrimp suffering is a <laughs> more than a meme within EA, but yeah. That. Um, yeah, audience questions. So Mia asks, um, do you have thoughts about figuring out you know, which experiences are positive or negative for non-human animals and not just sort of the capacity for suffering here? Yeah, so, so this is good, uh, and this is an important question. So I want to be very clear. Um, what we've done is we have tried to provide a way of thinking about the endpoints on the scale that you use in welfare assessment. So if you think about the way we set it up at the beginning, right, uh, you know, we're doing zero to one welfare assessment, we, we assume that scale, and now if, if we assume that the human animal are on the same scale, then the number of chickens results in them rapidly dominating. Um, and then what we did is we took that zero to one scale and we said, well, that's a welfare range. Now let's think about the relative sizes of the welfare range. That's, that's the basic project. So that leaves the question of how you assess where the animal is in its range totally open, right? We said nothing about that. And of course, the importance of doing that in a precise way is going to depend on the decision context, right? So suppose what you're doing is comparing you know, cages to cage-free environments for chickens, right? Maybe you just think, well, look, to be a chicken in a cage is about the worst life you can have as a chicken. So we're just going to call that zero. And then we're going to say, when you move to a cage-free environment, well, it's better. We're not sure how much better, right? So what you do is a break-even analysis, right? You don't actually have an answer to that question. You say, well, how much better does it need to be before that's the best thing to spend money on when we aggregate all the welfare that we would gain? Right? That's the right way to approach that question. And it probably is going to be the case that given the number of individuals, you don't need to make that big of a difference to welfare. Right? Maybe it's only a 10% bump. That could be enough. Right? Mm -hmm. So the upshot of saying that is I have nothing useful to tell you about this precise way we assess positive and negative states in non-human animals other than like traditional welfare science, like look at particular proxies. Right? We, you know, how much foot pad dermatitis is there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? But for the purposes of cost-effectiveness analysis, you do not need to have precise answers. What you need to do is have a baseline, and then you need to figure out, well, how much of a welfare change does there need to be before this beats other, your other options? And is it plausible that you've got at least that much? Yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks for clarifying how the research is meant to be used. I appreciate it. Um, I've heard a couple of people comment on one particular assumption, uh, which is sort of the equivalence of you know, assuming that the positive end of the scale goes as far as the negative end of the scale. Um, I think Tess had a question here. Yeah, what is the basis for assuming that you know, capacity for happiness here is equal to capacity for suffering? Great. So. Uh, this, is, this is a simplifying assumption that does not matter. And it does not matter for the following reason. 
Um, so, so, well, I guess first let me say why it's a simplifying assumption. So we don't want to actually commit ourselves to the view that welfare ranges are symmetrical, right? That the neutral point is, like, if it's a, you know, zero to 10 scale, that the neutral point is five, right? A lot of people seem to have the view that, um, you know, animals can have more negative welfare than they can have positive welfare, uh, and maybe that humans are the other way around, and humans can have more positive welfare than negative welfare. I think those views are actually like very difficult to defend. But regardless, the point is that nothing about the view requires that assumption. You could vary your view about the location of the neutral point. That's going to affect how much welfare you think is generated by particular interventions. But it's not going to sort of change the fundamental approach. And it's also not going to change the your estimate by that much. So to think about this, imagine you're measuring welfare on a 0 to 10 scale. Suppose that I make this simplifying assumption that um, you know, the, well, the neutral point is at 5. You think it's at 9 for chickens. You think that most of their welfare range is negative, and there's only a tiny positive portion. right? And suppose we're measuring welfare the way I was describing earlier, right? Oh, this animal's about as badly off as it can be, and maybe there's, say, a 10% improvement. So 10% of five, right? 0.5 units of welfare per individual. On my assumptions, on your assumptions, it's 0.9, right? I mean, you know, 0.5, dear readers, is not 0.9, but they're not that far apart. And when we're talking about orders of magnitude differences between the amount of welfare we might be dealing with in the case of chickens versus some of the interventions that we, we might be comparing them with, 2x just doesn't matter, right? It's a rounding error. So I think it's something we can mostly ignore, even though it's important. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing, and I found it really helpful in the forum post about these projects, or rather many forum posts about this project. Um, uh, yeah, this discussion of sort of like which assumptions matter. Right. And I guess I wanted to double tap on that. Um, you know, obviously there are a bunch of assumptions into this project. You talked about two of the most important ones. Um, I'm curious sort of which ones to you feel the most plausibly controversial in the sense that you know, uh, uh, reasonable people could disagree about whether or not that assumption is true, and if false, um, this has really big consequences for sort of the validity of the project as a whole. Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, so I think the spot where there's like the most reasonable disagreement, uh, well, there, I mean, there are several, there's a, look, okay, okay, all right. Look, this is really hard. Um, you know, we're, we're ta we're, this is a first pass at an extraordinarily difficult problem um, with, you know, a big interdisciplinary team, but limited time, limited resources. Confidence should be, you know, placed accordingly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the caveats, right? I am not going to pretend this is the last word. It is at best the first word. It might only be first part, the first word, all right? So that's the first thing to say. Second thing to say is there are assumptions and there are assumptions. By that I mean, look, this is EA. You get to assume a lot, right? You can assume that you can just aggregate welfare in these certain sorts of ways. You can assume some kind of broadly consequentialist approach. You get to assume like all these things that make this project much less controversial within EA 
right? Because we've already sort of gone in for a lot of the theoretical tools that put this approach on the table. Now, within that, of course, there are some crucial questions, like what theory of welfare are we going to accept, right? Which theories of valence? Do we think of the right theories of valence, right? Which proxies should be on the list, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Did we aggregate them properly, right? Are we appropriately adjusting for uncertainty? Are we dealing with the probability of sentience adequately, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Right? All of those things, in my view, are very reasonable places for disagreement, but they're not going to make a huge difference to the outcome, right? You can vary all those things, and yeah, you'll get different results, but everything's going to fall probably within an order of magnitude, right? It, they're just not huge differences. And I mean, it, it takes work to show that, but I, you know, I do think you can show that. The really crucial thing, the thing where all the action is, in my view, is whether we actually value equal quantities of welfare the same, right? And of course, as if we're you know, good act utilitarians, that's baked into the view. It's supposed to be like an uncontroversial assumption, right? But I think what we rapidly realize is people are very uncomfortable with that, and they just don't really buy the view that some non-human animals matter nearly as much as many humans, and they just don't really value that welfare as much. So I think if they were sort of offering you know, their views in a way that I think is transparent, they would say like, well, yeah, sure, like maybe that pains is intense, but like it just doesn't matter to me that much, right? And okay, you know, EA is a complicated movement, figuring out how to deal with different fundamental approaches to ethics is really hard, thinking about what kinds of, uh, you know, um, how, to, how to sort out disagreements about the amount that is appropriate to care about certain forms of welfare is hard, right? If you're a good old-fashioned philosopher like me, right, you just use the tools that we have available to us and you present all these arguments, but like if you're committed to some kind of moral anti-realism, a lot more complicated to figure out how you address these kinds of disagreements. And that could result in just massive differences. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of it is really people getting off the boat at very basic levels, right? They're rejecting the Unitarianism, mm -hmm. right? And that's doing a lot, of the, a lot of the heavy lifting. Now, I will also say, just as one last word on this, and I apologize for continuing on and on, but I think it's important to recognize as we're thinking about this, that you know, ultimately, it's the consequentialism that's doing a lot of the work here. Right? If you didn't want animals to dominate, right, maybe you shouldn't have been a utilitarian. <laughs> right? Like, that's your on you. Okay, I didn't make you do that, right? Like you chose that, right? So let's not let's not confuse claims about welfare from claims about the normative theory that goes from the claims about welfare to practical results, okay? Because if you don't have that normative theory, right, if you're not a utilitarian, then you're like, oh yeah, same amount of welfare, but it doesn't necessarily have the same practical conclusions. It's because we've gone all gone in for this framework. So I think what people want to put the blame on these welfare range estimates, and I think, oh, that's just 
not taking seriously your own moral commitments. Like, no, that's not the problem. The problem is that we're all committed to aggregating welfare impartially. And once you do that, guess what? Really numerous beings tend to count a lot. That's really cool. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, that's so interesting that you, um, I think before you answered that question, I don't think I personally would have um, thought of those like fundamental assumptions as driving so much of this work, but yeah. It's like or at least disagreement about the work. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, hmm. Moving back to a different topic, so moving away from welfare ranges and back to the actualized experiences of non-human animals, um, Gina asks, will RP and maybe your team do a follow-up project to estimate how much different farmed, farmed animals in different types of farms are actually suffering? That is a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, so we definitely want to do more moral weight work. Uh, we are certainly interested in, you know, refining the project, applying the project in various ways, extending it. Um, you know, at this stage, I think a lot of that work is prior to the question about welfare assessment. It's extending to other species so that you can do the kind of rough analysis where, you know, the break-even analysis that I was describing earlier where what you really care about is just whether the welfare impact is enough to make it such that the next dollar should go to say chickens over shrimp or vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I'm very interested in the philosophy of welfare assessment. We're doing some of that work now focused on invertebrates. I don't know how much we will do with vertebrates. Um, there's so little done with the invertebrates that we're sort of you know, trying to prioritize that work at this stage. But you know, the right grant, uh, I will be very happy to uh, tackle the next project, you know? Nice, exciting. Um, yeah, I guess on uh, the question of like extensions, I'm curious if there's a particular research direction or application of your work that you're most excited about right now? Well, so, so for 2023, one of the things that we're trying to do is make the project slightly more sophisticated because we want to be able to distinguish uh, situations in which animals main, are still in a net negative state at the end from those where they've been made net positive uh, or those where they're even starting net positive and their welfare is just being improved because that's going to matter a lot on at least certain moral assumptions for what you should prioritize. So we're starting with this with chickens right now and just trying to figure out like what's the appropriate methodology for assessing when animals have net negative lives as a way of getting at this question of the neutral point so that we can figure out, okay, well, what exactly are we dealing with when we're looking at a particular farmed context, right? Should we really say that, say, you know, pigs in gestation crates have net negative lives? If you're a prioritarian or a suffering-focused ethic, right, that's gonna really matter uh, to know that. So that's the sort of first step that we want to complete to improve the application. Because the way, you know, the thing about the way I set things up, zero to one scale, you actually don't want to think about this in terms of a zero to one scale. You want to think about 
Negative one-to-one, -one, minimally, that's, you know, because you want to be able to have a neutral point and think about negative welfare versus positive welfare. Mm -hmm. So we want to try to improve the application in that way. Um, and then after that, it's, um, yeah, it's not totally clear what's going to be the most valuable thing. I mean, one of the things we're very committed to at RP is trying to figure out what choices people are actually facing and what are the highest priority for them. So to some degree, I see this as a community question, like where would the work of other animal advocacy organizations or grant makers be affected by different developments of this work, and then that's what we should prioritize. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I don't know, it seems like a good plug for your office hours, for people to come pitch you, I guess, on <laughs> what they are bottlenecked by. Um, there's a methodological question, or yeah, here from Maya. So, I guess in humans, there is some strong evidence that top-down cognition can affect physical perceptions of pain. Um, so, you know, it seems like different species, different cognitive profiles could potentially affect their welfare ranges. Uh, I'm curious if you agree with this premise, and if so, did you account for it? Yeah, right. So, yes and no. The yes part of that answer is, yes, we are aware about this top-down modulation, and we use, we essentially break things up in terms of sort of simple hedonic proxies, mm -hmm. and uh, what you might think of as cognitive sophistication proxies, and then uh, reinterpret the significance of the hedonic ones in part on the basis of some of the cognitive proxies. So they, mm -hmm. there is the opportunity for that. Um, however, the problem is that we have very little understanding of what kind of top-down interaction effects there may be in non-human animals. And so a lot of this is sort of a low confidence exercise. So I, I certainly wouldn't want to suggest that we have adequately accounted for it, though we did try. That makes sense, yeah. Um, a similar-ish question on just a specific type of pushback. Um, so, for instance, how would you reckon with the idea that time is experienced subjectively? Um, and in particular, this person, um, Dean, wants to know, do you have any thoughts on crip time hypothesized by disability and animal scholars such as Sunora Taylor? Yeah, great. So those numbers are also adjusted by a uh, rate of subjective experience uh, factor as well. So Jason Shoecraft, who was previously on the project and then moved to open philanthropy, um, had done a bunch of work on what he at that time called the subjective experience of time, what I call the rate of subjective experience, and had specific estimates for the likelihood of there being variation in the rate of subjective experience plus estimates uh, of the probability that a particular proxy was a good proxy for variation in the rate of subjective experience, critical flicker fusion rates. And so we simply, uh, we, we took that for granted, integrated that into the model, and just adjusted the scores accordingly, which is why if you look at the uh, ranges that we attribute to each animal, some of them actually involve the animal having higher a higher uh, welfare range than humans, and that's entirely based on the rate of subjective experience. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, that is that is factored in. I forgot to mention that. I apologize. Um, Jacob asks, when assessing cognitive capacities, each proxy present, so in I think the list of around 46 to 50, if I remember, seems to count for one point. It seems like maybe some should be weighted more heavily, for instance, in proportion to how important that would be for survival. Um, yeah, I'm wondering how sensitive your model is to changing proxy weights. Yeah, great. So um, some of them are, so we have different, so I haven't talked about how we actually did the aggregation. So the way we do the aggregation is as follows. Um, we made a bunch of assumptions to get the project off the ground. Thereafter, we try to minimize the number of additional assumptions. So what we do is we say, here is this list of proxies, right, and whether scored as present or absent. And now what we're going to do is we're going to identify all the candidate hypotheses we can about the relationship between those proxies and welfare range overall. And rather than try to decide between them, we simply use, we, we aggregate over all of them, right? So it's sort of reflecting broad uncertainty about the correct way to move from individual proxies to the overall welfare range estimates. Now, you could, if you had, you know, if you wanted, in principle, you could go in and, uh, you know, all the data is public, you could go in and assign different weights, right, to things, and end up with different sorts of results. Um, and, you know, someone has done that. Someone has gone in and made their own moral weights that were different from ours, but not massively different from ours. Um, and so that's possible. You know, what we were trying, we sort of thought it was our mandate to not do more controversial stuff on top of the controversial stuff. So rather than adding those additional weightings, we just thought, well, like, let's just let the uncertainty be and see where that, it falls out that way. But I agree, ultimately, given more knowledge, you would want to weight everything and adjust accordingly, which you could. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so we're approaching the end of our time, so I'll end with one more question, and then I believe you have office hours today, is that correct? I do not. Oh, you do not have I office didn't, hours? I you, apologize, I didn't actually, I made a huge no. mistake. <laughs> but I, I just didn't know I was supposed to do that. Yeah. Um, but go ahead. Um, I guess one last question here. So, you know, uh, if you go on the EA forum or other places and you look at this work, it's a really huge body of work. I'm curious um, if there's one next place you'd like people who want to dig in further to go to. Do you have sort of a first starting point for them to go? Yeah, so I think if you were going to read two pretty short posts relative to the other things we did, one would just be the introduction to the Moral Weight Project to make sure you sort of understand what we were trying to do. And then the one about the welfare range table itself, where we tried to just tell you about the things that we learned about these animals without anything about aggregation. If you read those, you have a good sense of what the ambitions were and the main non-controversial findings, namely all the empirical findings. And then, of course, you know, that's, that's already quite a lot. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for both the work and the talk. Thank you. Thanks for coming.